0: All right, now I am going to do something that I have never done in nearly 25 years of preaching God's blessed Word. Whoa, I've got your attention. Everybody is looking at me. If you would, take your Bibles and turn to the book of Obadiah. I've literally never said that, ever. I've never said it, all right? I've never one time said, now, as Obadiah says, all right, so turn to the book of Obadiah, And I'll give you a few minutes for this one, all right? There's no shame in looking it up, all right? Uh, If you need to look it up and find a page, uh, he is tricky to find because Obadiah has no chapters, all right? It is only verses. There might be some who would quibble with me on this, but maybe I'm just a purist So if you are going to quote the book of Obadiah, say you wanted to quote Obadiah verse 10. You don't say Obadiah 1:10. There is no one. All right? I know it's snooty of me, okay? I know, but I'm just trying to help you. Um, that if you're around other snooty pastors, they'll be really impressed. If you quote, not Obadiah 1.10, but quote, Obadiah 10, all right? They'll know, wow, these people are well taught. Okay, so the book of Obadiah. And I'm also going to do something I've never done before. I'm going to read an entire book of the Bible from the pulpit at one time, all right? Obadiah, beginning in verse 1. The vision of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations, saying, Arise, and let us arise up against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be greatly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who dwell in the clefts of the rock, Whose habitation is high, you who say in your heart, Who will bring me down to the ground? Though you ascend as high as the eagle, and though you set your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, says the Lord. If thieves had come to you, if robbers by night, oh, how you will be cut off! Would they not have stolen till they had enough? If grape-gatherers had come to you, would they not have left you some gleanings? Oh, how Esau shall be searched out, how his hidden treasures shall be sought after. All the men in your confederacy shall force you to the border. The men at peace with you shall deceive you and prevail against you. Those who eat your bread shall lay a trap for you. No one is aware of it. Will I not in that day, says the Lord, even destroy the wise men from Edom and understanding from the mountains of Esau? Then your mighty men, O Taman, shall be dismayed to the end that everyone from the mountains of Esau may be cut off by slaughter. For violence against your brother Jacob shall shame cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. And the day that you stood on the other side, and the day that strangers carried captive his forces, when foreigners entered the gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, even you were as one of them. But you should not have gazed on the day of your brother and the day of his captivity "'Nor should you have rejoiced over the children of Judah in the day of their destruction, "'nor should you have spoken proudly in the day of distress. "'You should not have entered the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. "'Indeed, you should not have gazed on their affliction in the day of their calamity, "'nor laid hands on their substance in the day of their calamity. "'You should not have stood at the crossroads.'" to cut off those among them who escaped, nor should you have delivered up those among them who remained in the day of distress. For the day of the Lord upon all the nations is near. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your reprisal shall return upon your own head. For as you drank on my holy mountain, so shall all the mountains drink continually. Yes, they shall drink and swallow, and they shall be as though they had never been. But on Mount Zion, there shall be deliverance, and there shall be holiness. The house of Jacob shall possess their possessions. The house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, but the house of Esau shall be stubble. They shall kindle them and devour them, and no survivor shall remain of the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. The south shall possess the mountains of Esau. And the lowland shall possess Philistia. They shall possess the fields of Ephraim and the fields of Samaria. Benjamin shall possess Gilead. And the captives of this host of the children of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath. The captives of Jerusalem who are in Zephyrod, shall possess the cities of the south. Then saviors shall come to Mount Zion to judge the mountains of Esau. And the kingdom shall be the Lord's. You know, right off the bat, there's, there's something interesting to me about Obadiah. And aside from the fact that we have been studying the minor prophets for some time now, w- which may change the statement I'm about to make, but otherwise, you read the book of Obadiah, and there's not one thing that's familiar about it. There's not one of these verses that stands out, right? Right? There's not one of them where you read and you think, oh, I've heard that verse all my life. I didn't know it was an Obadiah. You know, Obadiah is one of those books, in fact, maybe it might be at the top of the list of the Bible's most overlooked, ignored, I would say misunderstood, but it's not that it's misunderstood. There's no attempt to understand it in the first place. Obadiah is just one of those books. Now, maybe it's not all of our fault, right? I mean, there's a couple of things that make Obadiah a challenge. One, it's short. It is not only the, the minorest of the minor prophets, all right? It's the shortest among the minor prophets. It's the shortest book in the Old Testament. So that's already a challenge. It's competing against some, some heavyweights, right? It's hard to know Obadiah when you, you've got 66 chapters in Isaiah, right? I mean, it's, it's hard then. Obadiah can kind of get lost in the shuffle. On top of that, Obadiah brings some other elements to it. Well, really, I should put it this way. Obadiah brings some uncertainty with it. There's a lot of elements that we don't know about its background, as we'll kind of look at it for a few minutes tonight. That also can make it tricky. It's a historic setting. I think we can discern, but, but even in terms of who is Obadiah, and, and, and then on top of that, it, you know, it continues this theme of, of judgment, but we see specific references to judgment against Edom and Esau. Maybe we have some trouble understanding what exactly is Obadiah getting at. In fact, here I read one commentator. I thought it was clever. Here's how he put... The book of Obadiah. He likened Obadiah to the location of the spleen, the meaning of Wi-Fi, and the capital of New Hampshire. We all know those things are out there. We just don't really know much more than that, right? I know I've got a spleen. What does it do? I don't really know. Where's it located? I don't have any idea. The capital of New Hampshire. Why don't you tell me first what you think it is, right? I, you know, I mean, it's just one of those things where, okay, it's it's tricky. We may not know. What does the word Wi-Fi mean? You may think you know, but you probably don't. Obadiah is that kind of a book. It's hard to access. But that's unfortunate. Because really Obadiah is rich with all of the themes we've studied in the minor prophets thus far. But there is a unique contribution that Obadiah brings us. He is the only prophet to explicitly focus on a pagan nation. Now, the other prophets deal with pagan nations, right? I mean, these other nations, Edom is dealt with in other prophets. Well, we saw in Amos. Amos chapter 1 includes God's word against Edom. But Obadiah is unique. He stands alone because the entirety of his book, even though he does address Judah, Jacob, he does address Israel, it's still in the context of Edom. There's, There's no other prophet that does this that not only is he he focused on this nation, this is a pagan nation, pagan-ish. I'll explain why I say it that way in just a minute. And and so it's an important book, because Obadiah, I think, really stands as a great example of the universal sovereignty of God. I know we've talked about this message before, but but Obadiah is going to drive it home. In fact, we saw it. What I think is one of, the, one of the most striking verses in the book was verse 15. For the day of the Lord upon all nations is near. So this is what Obadiah is really going to be all about. That when it comes to God's judgment, it is not reserved for just the rebellious people of Israel, the northern kingdom, or the rebellious people of Judah, the southern kingdom. In fact, it's not even just reserved for, say, Babylon and their violence they inflicted upon uh, Judah or the Assyrians and the violence they inflicted on Israel and the northern ten tribes. God's judgment will be leveled against all nations. You don't have to be in a covenant relationship with God to still be accountable to that God. Everyone on the planet, for all of human history, from its beginning until God brings it to an end, every single one is accountable to God. And this is what Obadiah is getting across in just 21 verses. So it really is a helpful book. Now, there's one other thing that that Obadiah has going against him. If you want some little tidbits about Obadiah, He's, he's on a list of Old Testament books that are not referenced in the New Testament. So this may also account for why he doesn't get much of a spotlight. So no New Testament author refers to him. Jesus does not quote him. However, it does appear other prophets like Jeremiah and Malachi rely on language and imagery that's first found in the book of Obadiah. So tonight, we turn our attention to the fourth minor prophet. What's great about Obadiah is also the way it provides us an opportunity to think a little more carefully, because at the center of the book of Obadiah is the Old Testament's biggest rivalry. If I were to ask you what nation is Israel's biggest rival, biblically speaking, what nation would come to mind? Well, some may say, well, the descendants of Ishmael. And yes, there are, there's definitely some rivalry there. Some may go to Egypt, right, and say, well, no, it's really kind of Egypt and Israel. But if you read about the history, if you read the history of God's people, yes, there is enslavement in Egypt and they come out of it. But in terms of there being back and forth rivalry, not so much. Maybe some of you would say the Philistines, right? We see those dudes show up all the time. Okay, and that would be on the list. But there's no other nation described as being as in as much antagonism with God's people as the nation of Edom. And this book gives, is an important piece of that history. Why is that the case? Why is it that, that Edom does stand as, as this, this biggest rival, all right? I don't want to downplay it, but I mean, this is, you know, Celtics… Lakers, all right, Red Sox, Yankees, this, this, is, uh, this is the nature of this. It's Carolina Duke, all right, this is, this is Democrats, Republicans, this is the nature of this thing, all right, that the, there, there, there is this, this intense rivalry that has expressed itself in significant violence over the centuries. This is a story that's going to take us back to some of the earliest stories of the book of Genesis, and especially with the, the beginnings of the people of God. So here's what we need to do tonight. You don't have blanks you have to fill in. You, you have notes that are complete in the form that you have them, all right? So because this is the way I like to introduce a book, it'll take us a couple of weeks to do this. Say, Pastor, it took you two weeks to introduce Romans. It took you, it's going to take you two weeks to introduce Obadiah? Yes, yes, all right, it will. But I promise you, read my lips. It will not take me five years to preach through Obadiah. I promise, promise, I promise, I promise I will give you five million dollars if it takes me five years. Now, will I get it done in five weeks? Oh, we'll see, all right? What else are we doing on Wednesday nights? Okay? So we're going to introduce ourselves to this book. We want to look at some important background information, make sure we have, you know, an understanding here of, of the context of it. It gives, our, it gives us kind of a, of a running start, so to speak. It'll help us then when we come across some of these passages that we just read uh, and will give us an opportunity to, to fill in the blanks with a little bit more care uh, and precision. So, as we're, as we're thinking about it, we're going to let Obadiah introduce himself to us in a sense. All right. So, r- right off the bat, and if you've got notes you can follow along as I kind of go through this if there's other little things you want to jot down. I can't promise you I'm going to say every word that's on the page you've got in front of you. I may say more words than what are on the page in front of you. So if you want to jot those down, you certainly can. So the first thing we want to address, who wrote the book? All right, okay, so what does it say? Well, it says in verse 1, the vision of Obadiah. All right, so Obadiah is the author. The word vision, by the way, is is that, that... prophetic language, it it doesn't necessarily mean that Obadiah is being given a vision to the same degree that, say, John received a vision for the book of Revelation, or Ezekiel's revelations, or even when we saw Amos uh, being given a revelation of of the, the things that were to come. Instead, it is a way of saying God has directly communicated with Obadiah. To say that this is a vision is to say the only way Obadiah could have access to this information is for God to supernaturally bestow it. Now, we get to the name Obadiah, we do have a bit of an issue here. Because, I might might ask you the question, what, what do we know about Obadiah? We know he wrote this book. What else do we know about Obadiah? Well, some may say, well, we know his name is Obadiah. Well, not so fast. Pastor, what does that mean? Well, the name Obadiah literally means servant of Yahweh. It's entirely possible this isn't even a proper name. So what else do we know about him? Nothing. Nothing. Now... Some of you may want to go back and you start looking up Obadiah. You're going to find, I don't know, a dozen or more references to Obadiahs in the Old Testament. There, we have zero evidence that any of them are tied to this. You may find some who will tie it, and maybe that's entirely possible. But we don't have really compelling evidence that any of the Obadiahs referenced in the Old Testament are, in fact, the author of this book. And the fact that his his name, the only thing he goes by is servant of the Lord. Was that even intended to identify the name of somebody? Maybe not. By the way, I love it when the Bible does this. I love it when there are some of these books that come with a certain level of uncertainty about the human author. Because while it's helpful to know the human author, it can give us insight in a lot of ways to a lot of parts about the book. At the end of the day, who wrote it? God did. God did right? Does it matter that this is a vision of a specific person? No, it matters that it then the next part of verse 1, thus says the Lord God. That's what matters. So every now and then we got some books that do this. And so we, we have, and we're, we're going to refer to him, by the way, as Obadiah, we're going to refer to him as if that's his name, but I do find this interesting. You know, normally I'd be able to tell you even Amos, even Amos we knew was, you know, just a, just a good old country boy, Right? We knew where he farmed. It was in the middle of nowhere, but we knew it. And we knew what he farmed. But Obadiah is one of these guys. And in fact, I'd have to go and look at the rest of them. We could know, it's possible, we know the least amount of information about Obadiah as any of the prophets. That could also account for why he may not make, you know, the top five list of favorite books of the Bible. All right? So we don't know much about about him. However... When we ask about who wrote it, that leads then into another question that's, that's there in that same section, and that is when. So when was this book written? Well, you come up with another challenge here. You're going to find, if you go and want to study this for yourself, you will find ranges from 800 B.C., which would then put him, say, around the time of Amos, to 400 B.C which would put him beyond, say, the time of Daniel. In fact, if he wrote in 400 B.C., he, that, that would put him beyond the time of the return of the exiles. That's beyond the time of the books like uh, Ezra and Nehemiah and Esther. So, so there's quite a range. But you'll notice, maybe you picked up on this as we read through it. There seems to be one specific historic event that's front and center of the book. It talks about this destruction of Jerusalem, right? Probably picked up on that language that not only only is there this destruction of Jerusalem that takes place, so for example, like verse 10 For violence against your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. In the day that you stood on the other side, in the day that strangers carried captive his forces, when foreigners entered the gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, even you were as one of them. Now, there were definitely times throughout Israel's history that that there were attempts to invade Jerusalem, but there's one... It stands above all the others. And that's the invasion by the Babylonians in 587 B.C. It, it's, this is the one that's, that's uh, the, the focus of a lot of the prophetic material. Uh, you know, we have a number of prophets who foretell the coming destruction to come upon Judah at the hands of the Babylonians. They're, they're going to charge in and be God's instrument of judgment for their sin. We know that happens in 587 Nebuchadnezzar comes in and burns and kills as he comes through the nation. We know he practically burns Jerusalem to the ground. We know that the temple is practically dismantled. And on top of that, he takes the youngest, brightest, and best of the nation back to Babylon, right? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, all right? These guys, Daniel, these guys then get taken back. So it sounds to me like Obadiah is referencing this event. Again, there could be some other historic events, and I wouldn't necessarily be tied to it, but to me it makes the most sense that this is the event that he's talking about, so how does that help us? Well, that means, given the language he's writing in the past tense, it seems best that, to understand Obadiah as writing right after the fall of Jerusalem. So, I put a date, it's it's not mine, I've read other commentators that would concur, though there are others that disagree, about 586 B.C. And you say, well, Pastor, that seems really specific for not knowing the dude, all right, not knowing who he is, or not... Okay, the other thing that we can tell from this book is that it foretells the utter destruction of Edom, but that has not yet happened, right? So, it, it has to be sometime after the fall of Jerusalem, but we do know that in just a few years after the fall of Jerusalem, Babylon, and Obadiah foretells this by the way, Babylon is going to turn on Edom and devour her basically. So it seems best then to, to see Obadiah being written 586, 585, somewhere around in there. Because this, this, I think, is the best historic information for what's behind the book. All right, so so we know who wrote it, Obadiah, though we don't really know much else about it other than it seems to be during, right after, uh, Jerusalem's destruction at the hands of the Babylonians. So to whom was it written? This is the next part of your notes. Well, go to the next part of the verse. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. And it has this little interesting parenthetical statement. The New King James sets it off with parentheses. We have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations, saying, Arise and let us rise up against her for battle. So that's an interesting statement, and we'll get into it as we get into these verses and kind of unpack them when we do the more expository portion of the, you know, each of the sermons coming up, going through each of the verses. So it's giving us a little bit of detail here. Whatever's going on, we're at a period of time where God is now going to call on other nations. He does this. He uses other nations as instruments of judgment. And it very specifically is saying, God is sending out a messenger to stir up the nations against Edom. So, Edom is the focus. The entire message is directed at this one nation. Now, I, I, I don't want to assume that you don't know who Edom is, but this puts me in a tricky place, because I don't want to assume that you do know who Edom is either, all right? So it's there on your notes. Some of you would be aware, and in fact, you can probably pick it out from context clues. Edom, the Edomites are the descendants of Esau. All right, so we, we know then that the, the beginning of this struggle goes way back. Now, in terms of the name Edom, you might wonder, well, how do descendants, why are they not (laughs) Esauites, right? Well, so the name Esau, there's a bit of a play on the name of Esau with the word Adam, which means red. And you may recall there are two elements of Esau's story that are significant. When he's born... Apparently, he wasn't one of those babies that came out and you you thought, oh, he's adorable. All right. No, instead, he's hairy and red. All right. Okay. So, you know, some babies aren't... All right. Some babies can be ugly. All right. So, apparently, Esau was an ugly baby and was red. But then, what else did he do? He sold his birthright for stew, specifically lentil stew, specifically red lentil stew. And the word shows up in the Hebrew, that same word so i already find it interesting that you have an entire nation that's named after a guy who was kind of ugly red in color all right and sold his entire birthright for a pot of peas so th- this is not a, this is not a great beginning right to a nation but this is how, this is how they became known so this is how Esau's descendants became known as Edomites because of this language because of the again the play on words uh, for the word red now this struggle as you are aware goes way back I've got this in your notes And, and Esau was not just struggling so the Edomites have not just struggled with Israel we know that Esau struggled with what was his brother's name Jacob all right they were not just brothers; they were twins, and they did not just fight as children. They fought in the womb, right? They, they, they wrestled with one another. In fact, their mother Rebecca is quite concerned of, and asked the question, "Why are they doing this?" And this is the answer. This is in your notes, Genesis twenty-five twenty-three: Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples born of you shall be divided the one shall be stronger than the other the elder shall serve the younger again it's not an auspicious beginning right i mean that this this is our, this is this is kind of foreboding the way this is told they 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 start out wrestling and we know that there is then contention so he's esau is then tricked out of his birthright by his brother jacob He's then also swindled out of or cheated, deceived out of the blessing of the father on the firstborn, right? And we know that in that story, when when Esau finds out that Jacob has not only now stolen the birthright, but stolen the firstborn blessing with the help of his mother, so Esau, pun intended, sees red, all right? Okay, so Esau has one thing on mind, death, violence, violence. Jacob has to flee. And we know the story of Jacob and what he goes through, right? Uh, you know, working for years for one wife, uh, switcheroo on the wedding night. One of the Bible's weirdest stories, all right? And then has to go another seven years to get the wife he wanted. All right, so we, while we know all that's going on. But we also know eventually, Jacob is confronted by Esau, right? And Jacob is concerned, that now Esau's going to make good on the threats of death. By the way, you go back and read those stories, you'll find Jacob is not the guy. You don't don't want your daughters and granddaughters marrying Jacob, all right? Okay, now God's going to change him. But until this time, Jacob is a deceitful, uh, lying, conniving man. So much so that when he hears Esau's coming, do you know what he does? He establishes his least favorite wife and children in order between him and Esau. That's how, he lays, that's how he sets them up. He's not like the dad, right, in the front, getting ready to face death. No, I'm going to send the, one of the four wives I like the least. All right, she's going to go out there first. She's going to be the first one to meet him. But we know this doesn't turn out the way he thought, right? First, God sends an angel to wrestle with Jacob. And we know that Jacob then has his name changed. He's called Israel. No longer will he be known as, you know, usurper, grabber of heel. Uh, but now will be, be known as, as the, the one who will, who will be the, the covenant father in a sense. I mean, now he'll, he'll have the 12 sons. And uh, so we know this is a dramatic moment. At the same time, there seems to be a bit of reconciliation with Esau. But for whatever reason, whatever happens, it doesn't stay that way. So the Edomites are going to take up residence directly south of Judah. And throughout their history, they're going to go up and down, and really, they're going to spend most of their history engaging in acts of violence against Israel. They're at times going to collude with the Syrians, with the Philistines, with the arabians. We have books like Psalms, uh, chapters like Psalm 79, Psalm 83 that speak of acts of violence from the Edomites. Against Israel, so, so that this is just going to be a part of their history, eventually though, under David and Solomon, David is going to conquer them, and they will end up serving Israel until the kingdom is split after Solomon, and eventually Edom is going to win her independence back you could say they, they revolt against Judah. And they become an independent nation again. And so this is kind of a bit of their history. But then there's another story about Edom that features really prominently in this rivalry. You may recall one of Israel's most vulnerable moments. This, this trek from Egypt to the promised land. They have to make their way through land occupied by Edomites. Keep in mind, they're brothers, right? This should be family. Esau had been circumcised. For a period of time, he lived under the covenant. He eventually marries two Canaanite women and a daughter of Ishmael. But up until then, he's, he's in covenant relationship. They should be brotherly with one another, these nations, but they're not. Israel asks for passage through Edom. Not only does Edom deny it, but they send an army to confront them. And Israel turns around and walks away. But the biggest issue happens here. We'll get into more detail when we get into it, but just as as a bit. So here's what happens. Again, keep in mind that Edom is south of Judah. When the Babylonians come from the northeast, they come descending upon Judah. Again, pillaging and burning as they come. They they come through Jerusalem with with acts of violence that the prophets describe as the streets running with blood. So people begin to flee Jerusalem and Judah. Where are they going to flee? They're not going to flee north. That's where the army's coming. They flee south. And what do they find when they get south? When they get to Edom? Guess what Edom does? They just perpetuate the violence. They take advantage of them, they steal from them, and rather than coming to the aid of their brothers, they not only do nothing, they in fact inflict their own forms of abuse upon them. And so this is then where Obadiah comes in, being being a prophet that warns, warns fundamentally against what? Well, you see it there in the the beginning of verse 2, actually uh, verses 2 and 3. Behold, I will make you small among the nations, you shall be greatly despised. We're going to pick up, by the way, on Obadiah's poetic flares. He's really good at this. You will be small among the nations, but you will be great in being despised. Obadiah is is a master at this kind of language. The pride of your heart has deceived you. So Obadiah is identifying for us, God through Obadiah, is identifying for us what is their fundamental deal, and they are a people of pride. They are a people who think they are above failure. They are a people who think they are untouchable by pain and by invasion. They think they are safe and secure. Their pride is found in the fact that the last thing on their mind is thinking that anybody could overtake them, Babylonians or God. And so Obadiah is identifying them in the essence of their pride as being fundamental to their sin. Now, we're, we're gonna, we'll, we'll stop here. We'll keep going then next week. But there are, there are a couple of other comments to make, though, about Edom. Because what, what, what God's going to say to Obadiah is I'm going to utterly wipe them off of the planet, off the face of the planet. Now, this doesn't mean there will not be genetic descendants of Esau. There, in fact, are genetic descendants of Esau today. Genetically. There would be. There have to be, right? There are those. In fact, there is one who shows up in the New Testament. Does anybody know, if you've not read your notes, who he is? Who is a descendant of Edom that features prominently in the birth stories of Jesus? Yeah, Herod. Herod was an Edomite. And, and, and so, so they, are, they do have genetic descendants, But what's interesting, not long after this book, and Babylon is going to come in and going to destroy them, you will find after that, historically, there's no longer going to be any trace of a distinct Edomite culture. You could even think about it this way. Would anybody here say your favorite food is Edomite food? Anybody think, well, I hope Newburn could get an Edomite restaurant sometime. Anybody here have on your bucket list to visit the top ten vacation spots in Edom? All right. Now I'm not saying there's not a location where it used to be, but that's the point. This nation doesn't exist anymore because God removed it. Edom is going to serve then as an illustration of what He will do to all nations. What He will do to all nations. By the way, this is probably good for us as Americans to consider. Well, I don't know if I should say this, but I'm going to, all right? You do know the day will come in that day when the day of the Lord comes. When we are translated out of this life and into the next, you do know in the glory of God's greater kingdom to come, you will never have even one fleeting second of a thought that you are still an American. Right? This is a temporary nation. You, you, I, want to be a part of the greater kingdom to come. Edom is a reminder to us. This is what God will do with the nations. God, God will one day wipe them all out and will establish then His one forever kingdom. This is in the book of Obadiah. It's only 21 verses, but this is going to be the message of Obadiah. All right, so weeks to come. This is what we're going to study. We'll walk our way through it and see what Obadiah has to say to us. All right, let's pray. Father God, we do thank you for the gathering of your people. Privileged to be able to come together and to pray and study your word. And we do thank you for this word. And Father, we, we confess it is probably a word that we have ignored, not on purpose. Uh, but uh, just as a part of Your Word that at times we have trouble accessing. And so, God, we pray that You, by Your Spirit, would give us understanding of it. We know it is Yours. It is a vision You have given to Your people, and not just the people of a time gone by. It is for us, as those transformed by the gospel of Christ, longing for the, the greater kingdom to come, citizens of heaven, Father, that You would help us to see how this message still speaks to us and motivates us and encourages us that we might be faithful to you. I thank you for these who've gathered and their willingness to be a part of this time. I pray they would know your blessing upon them. Grant them wisdom for the days to come, that they might fulfill the roles you've given to them faithfully and obediently and for your glory. Gather your people back together again that we might worship you in spirit and in truth. That's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.